Have you been learning Django and now you want to get your site online? Are you not sure about the best way to host it or the trade-offs between the various options? Maybe you want to make sure your Django site is secure. On this episode, I'm joined by two Django experts, Will Vincent and Carlton Gibson. Talk about deploying and running Django in production, along with recent updates in Django 3.2 and beyond. This is Talk by Thunder Me, episode 301, recorded January 19th, 2021. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python, the language, the libraries, the ecosystem, and the personalities. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Twitter where I'm at mkennedy, and keep up with the show and listen to past episodes at talkpython.fm, and follow the show on Twitter via at talkpython. This episode is sponsored by Square and Linode. Please check out what they're offering during their segments. It really helps support the show. Before we get to our discussion, just one quick announcement. We started live streaming the recordings of Talk Python to Me episodes on YouTube. If you're part of the live stream, you'll have a chance to ask questions and your comments might get featured on the air. Just visit talkpython.fm slash YouTube to subscribe to the channel and see upcoming and past live streams. Now onto the show. Carlton, Will, welcome to Talk Python to Me. Again, welcome back, guys. Yeah, Good thank you. You came on our show and I was on your show three years ago. So Carlton's yeah. first first time on your show. Yeah. Talk Python newbie. It was great to have you on the show before, Will. And we talked about Django then. And uh, I suspect it won't surprise people with uh, you and Carlton here that we may touch on Django. I think we've got to talk about Django a little bit. A little, a little bit. Carlton, tell people who you are. I'm Django fellow. So what that means is I help to maintain the framework, a framework the size of, oh, you've got me on Twitter there. So oh, Carlton yeah. Gibson on Twitter and on um, GitHub, numerous other places probably. But a framework the size of Django's, it just simply doesn't get maintained on purely volunteer effort. So there's a body called the Django Software Foundation, which Will's on the board for. He can tell you a bit about that in a second. But they are the, a charitable foundation, which, well, they collect money from donations from GitHub sponsors, and you can donate on DjangoProject.com. And then they, the main thing they do is they contract the fellows, which is myself and um, Maris Felisiak, who's my colleague now. And we do that. We I don't know. What do we do? We triage the tickets. We do pull request review. We do handle security issues. We handle the releases, not least the alpha releases today. So today, literally today, we released Django 3.2 alpha 1. Fantastic. Is that the very first 3.2 release? That's the first one. So that's like if you've got a Django project and you've got CI, you download it now and you run it on your CI and you tell us all the things we broke. <laughs> better before we release the final. You know, It's much better during the, the alpha pre-release period than you know just after 3.2 final. You go, hey, everything's broken. Yeah, you really need people to test it now before yeah. it's too late right yeah but uh, yes it's quite exciting because the last couple of weeks have been building towards the feature free so the alpha marks the feature free so the beat over the pre-release period now we'll we'll merge bug fixes in the new features so anything that people find and, and report will fix and get out before the final but there's no new features going into 3.2 so on thursday just gone i branched the stable branch for 3.2 which will be that's django 3.2 and it will be that for the next three years because the long-term release gets quite the long-term support release, which 3.2 is, gets three years of support. That's really great. All right, we're going to definitely have to come back to that, but also welcome, Will. Tell everyone about yourself real real briefly. You know, you were on the show a while ago and we talked, I believe it was Learning Django we spoke about, right? I loved in Django at the time. So I'd written, I think, a couple books. So I have three books, Django for Professionals and APIs. And the last two years, I've been a member of the Django Software Foundation board about two who were voted in, who were play a prominent role in the community one way or another. And then the board is seven people annually voted on who manage Django itself, which is a nonprofit. About that later. So yeah, I, and, I, and I have now a website, learndjango.com, which is an online version of additional content. But yeah. in addition to having a podcast with Carlton, uh, Django Chat, since he's a fellow, which is contracted by the board, we have another touch point <laughs> as if we didn't need <laughs> More. Exactly. Yeah. So I was on your show a while ago and that was super fun. I uh, really enjoyed our conversation there. And, you know, maybe just tell people quickly about your podcast. What kind of stuff do you cover there? Obviously, Django, but, you know, where do they find it? Where do you cover? Okay. So we get people on from the community. It's kind of an interview type basis. We get someone on. It, uh, it's fortnightly now. We were doing it every week, but, you know, we not like you, Michael, we can't keep it up for so we've gone fortnightly, which has taken a bit of pressure off with COVID and, you know, the kids off school and all of that. But we get, you know, people who've contributed to Django or people who are using Django in their business and 
talk about it. So it's it's Django Chat. It's chatting about it's Django. It's chatting about Django, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's chatdjango.com. I think recreating a little bit of what you would have at a DjangoCon event. So these are annual events. So we started after I went to my first DjangoCon and met Carlton and was like, why can't I talk to people about Django more often? And at the time, there wasn't a Django podcast. So yeah, it's, we've gotten to interview really my dream list of guests. I mean, we, we had actually, I was just talking to someone else who works at Stripe, which is still running on Sinatra, which is a Ruby thing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've talked to DHH because he's came on our show. So we talked about Rails versus Django. We had Carl Myron, who's at Instagram, was formerly Django Core. All the basically everyone, almost everyone we'd want to talk to who's involved in Django is willing to come on and share their story. Um, so it's, I think it's a really nice connector and educational for us too. I do as well. And you're just sort of a sidebar for our show here. You know, being all of us fellow podcasters, I think it's really interesting the role that podcasts play in, in keeping connections to the broader tech community when we can't go anywhere. I mean, even if you weren't typically going to conferences or meetups, you could still go to work and see other people. Yeah. <laughs> Right. It's just first when COVID hit, I was like, I'm just I'm not traveling anywhere. I'm not taking my kid to school or anything like that. So there's no like natural place here. I'm stuck for 45 minutes. I'm going to just listen. But as it's drawn on, I started to listen to shows, especially with multiple people trying to bring sort of a, a normalcy. And I, I get to kind of hang out with these people, even though they don't respond to me. I still get to hang out with them. And I think that's a really interesting societal thing that's happening right now. Yeah, yeah you know, I think I mean, it's beneficial across the board. I mean, I, probably like like you all, I listen to podcasts outside of tech as well. And it's sort of like people I'd want to sit in on their conversations anyways. So for me, it's probably my primary media consumption aside from books. Yeah. But I mean, I'm not reading ancient Greek like Carlton. Carlton has a PhD <laughs> and all that. So we're going to talk about specifically um, deployments on Django. I mean, we can go on and on about obviously all the intricacies of Django, but I think suffice to say, I'm an educator on the and on the board and Carlton's a fellow. So he's he makes the releases happen, including 3.2 Alpha, which just dropped today. And I guess you, yeah. you mentioned LTS. So that's confusing to non-Django yeah. people. So since having fellows like Carlton, Django has a pretty rapid release cycle where it's every nine months or so. So there was three zero, three one, three two. This December, I think Carlton is four zero. Every one of those is a long term service release, so that will last two and a half years. So if the, if that is a three years, yeah, it's it's on. There's a link on the Django project site. So that's a way that so Django doesn't really have. It's rare to have breaking changes these days, but the LTS is designed to help people who can't keep up with that cycle. Stay up to date, though we have a lot of podcasts and opinions about why you should always stay up to date and it's worth it. Yeah. Because that's one of the most fair things you can do. Because as Carlton mentioned, there's bug fixes constantly. So there'll be there's 311, 312, there'll be, you know, 32, then there'll be 321 a month later or so. I'm a big advocate of, you know, if you possibly can get on the latest major release. So you like hanging out historically, the long term release was really, the LTS release was really important. Because there were breaking changes, right? In each major version of Django, there were new things and it was difficult to keep. But that's not the case anymore. It's really easy to update. So I'm a big advocate of that. Now, and then when I, you know, I talk to fellow people in the Django community, they're like, well, you know, I work in the real world and you can't always <laughs> keep up on the, the latest major version. So for those folks, then, you know, the LTS is a really good option because it's once every three years, you know, it's coming. Yeah. You get a six month window of overlap of support. So the old LTS gets six months of security release after the release of the new LTS. And that, that's your window to update. Well, I think that running and maintaining software built upon frameworks like Django, it falls into two categories for me. It falls into, here's something that we have a team or at least somebody dedicated to owning this project and we care about its ongoing life. And then we have the ones that are the, oh, please don't touch it. And the, the oh, please don't touch it is we've long since stopped developing that. Maybe the person who developed it left, but it's still important and we don't want to break it. It's working right now, but if you touch it and you break it, you've now adopted it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's that thing that just, it runs. It's like if you break the build. Yes, but but worse because it's legacy build. So to me, I feel like that please don't touch it side, the LTS makes perfect sense for them. Yeah, entirely, entirely. I, I, the way I like to think of it is, is this a thing that you're feasibly going to add new features to? And if you're feasibly going to add new features to, then you should be on the latest major version. And because it's only it's once every eight months, you need to allocate a day or two to keep up, to you know fix, up, download the new version, 
run the test suite, see the deprecation warnings, fix the deprecation warnings. You know, maybe you have to wait a couple of weeks for a dependency to update and and then you can push forward. And that's once every eight months, that, that process. And if you're adding new features, if it's a live project, ideally you'd be there. Yeah. There's something which you just need to keep running for the long run. You know, you could do that much less frequently. Right. But it, it allows people who have that, please don't touch it. But, oh, there's a security problem. If there's no LTS and there's a security problem, then not only do they have to figure out how to redeploy the fix, they've got to say, well, we didn't touch it for three years and it doesn't quite work the same. So then you get into the discussion of, well, what's the risk? Will they really? It's just Java swing. I mean, come on, what's the problem, right? How bad could that go with, you know, like the entire world's credit report speed? Now that we're in Python 3 world, Django was part of that. It's really beyond the security thing. It's also all the ecosystem around Django, the third-party packages. Like mm -hmm. a lot of times, if if you look at their project that says, I can't update, why can't you update? They did two things. They're using a third package, which falls into that, you know, touch it, you you broke it situation. Mm -hmm. Or they did something custom at one point. They they went off the guardrails and the, the bill comes due. I mean, it's so tempting. Actually, I, and I actually, I want to, speaking of going off the guardrails, quick note that um, Django just passed Flask uh, to stars which is a really poor metric of um, popularity, but nonetheless, we'll take it. Yeah, congratulations. That's awesome. <laughs> very easy to you know, spin up a couple API endpoints and mm -hmm. boom, you're using Flask. That's a very different thing. That's like, as DHH would say, that's a Lego versus the Lego truck that is a framework like Django. And anecdotally, yeah. a lot of places use Flask, but in terms of a big site that's all Flask, that's much less common than all Django. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about this this morning and it, you know, the... Flask and Django are pretty neck and neck in terms of popularity. They're not on GitHub. Yeah, yeah, sure. There's these metrics and popularity. They, they're like all over the map. So one of the thoughts I had, though, is the people that use Flask, this is not a knock against Flask. I like it. But one of the, my sort of impressions is if I just need to, like you said, just create a couple of APIs and just we're just going to get something going real small and simple and it's just roll. Like those people are not in, as invested in the ecosystem and the framework as I feel like the Django folks are, I feel like the Django folks, it's a more encompassing part of their development experience and their development lifecycle. Like Django feels more part of the project when people adopt it and love it. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? You need a dozen apps to use Flask. And I hope that we get David Lord on to talk about Flask because he's at Django Cons. I mean, it's, it's not a competition. I don't mean to say there's a competition between the two, but there are different purposes, I would say, Carlton, right? Yeah, the different styles as well. Like, you know, if you want to put together something, why not Flask? But I mean, I've been using Django for so long now that even if I just need to spin up two endpoints, it's much quicker for me to do that in Django than it is to go and get a, a supposedly micro framework and work out how am I supposed to use this? You know, I have a, we could put the link in the notes. I have, I made up a repo with the code because you didn't provide code. You can have a single file Django project same way you can for Flask because a lot of times that whole world comparison will lead people to assume that Flask is much less complicated than Django. And it's a little bit less. It's more around to how it's structured, which is the point of Elton's talk. Yeah. So the the talk was called um, How to uh, Using Django as a Micro Framework or something like that. And it was about mm -hmm. the the base HTTP handlers, the kind of that really real core of the framework. And I was, right. you know, I put up a few examples from different frameworks from like Flask and Node example and um, Starlet, the, you know, async micro framework from Tom Christie. And then I, you know, showed how you might put that together in Django. Yeah, for people who don't necessarily live and breathe the web stuff like the three of us do. Yeah, yeah, right. Give them a quick definition of micro framework before you go on. I, in the talk, I get, I was like, you know, what is a micro framework? Yeah, I'm asking you because I don't want to put my foot out there. <laughs> the answer I came up with was it's got a great hello world, right? Yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> like, I think the the idea is that it's easier to contrast it with like Rails or Django. Rails and Django, they come with the batteries included, with everything right. you need. You know, you've got your ORM or Active Record. You've got an ORM, you've got database, you've got migrations, yeah, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. You've got all those stuff. Whereas your micro framework, you perhaps get the core HTTP handling, and that's about it. And then you have to go and find a forms library. Okay, I found a forms library. And then you have to pull in an, an ORM or a database of that. Okay, I got, I'll use that one. And you know, so there are there are node full batteries included frameworks. Like Happy is very good; it's got everything you need. But like the classic node example is, oh, you know, I, I get Express and I pull in this this thing for yeah. passing URLs and that thing. You know, so there's a continuum. But yeah. micro frameworks fit more towards that. You know, you put the pieces together yourself. Whereas a batteries included framework like Django, you get not everything, but a lot in the box. Right. right. 
So your your experience is more Django pieces, Django building blocks than oh, a little flask, a little sequel alchemy, a little this, a little that. Definitely. And I've been doing it so long now that I, I'd struggle to break out of that. I, I, I just, you know, I, I throw in a bit of Starlet or a bit of fast API, see what's going on with the new frameworks. Every new framework that comes out, I'll always give it a run. And then my question is, well, okay, well, what can we learn from that? This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Square. Do you run or want to build a web application that sells products or services? Building a successful online business is the stuff that dreams are made of. But accepting payments and handling credit cards with all the various regulations is a common stumbling block. But not with Square's payment API. With Square, your Python web app can easily take payments. You'll seamlessly be able to accept debit and credit cards as well as Square gift cards. Let your users pay with their digital wallets. Square works with Apple Pay, Google Pay, and MasterPass all in one go. Your API includes PCI compliance, end-to-end encryption, dispute management, and fraud detection. Build your online payment form in three steps with Square Payment SDKs. Step one, create a new Square API application. Step two, add Square's payment form to your checkout flow. Step three, use Square's API to charge the card. So get started building your business on Square. Just visit talkpython.fm square or click the link in your podcast player's show notes. That's talkpython.fm slash square. It's a really large site. If you ask them, like, what language and framework do you use? It's like everything. Just because of the needs of a massive site, it ends up being, it's hard to say that it's truly one thing. I mean, Instagram is still has pieces of Django in it, but, you know, it's at that scale, it's its own thing. And I think, you know, the micro frameworks are really good for doing that. This might be a pessimistic take, but I've heard people make that a micro framework allows you to switch the complexity from individual developers who may be sharing you just as much up to your upper level because they only can touch a tiny part of the the monolith so they can in a way do less damage that's actually like yeah. an organizational argument for micro frameworks is that only the software architects or the senior people fit it all together they weave the pieces or they put they build the puzzle or whatever yeah that i guess especially if your testing suite isn't as good as it could be yeah i don't know i think there's an interesting conversation about like monolith type software styles versus not. I'm actually a big fan of the monolith style. Like all my attempts to break it into little pieces, at least in the microservices, which is not the same as micro framework, but I always feel like I've quadrupled my deployment complexity to half my software complexity. And I'd rather manage half as much software complexity as you know, twice as much deployment it's a discipline, right? Like if you were part of a five person team in a large organization assigned to fix something and you're just like, there's no way we can get it done within this monolith, but like, oh, we could spin something up and solve the problem and move on. Apply that by yeah. a lot. <laughs> I think, you know, <laughs> or, in a, or in an individual project, you get fancy and you customize Django or you use a third party package that is out of date or maybe you shouldn't use any of the same issue. Yeah, I don't know. Like, okay, we're, we're segueing slightly back in, into the deployment topic, which ostensibly we came to talk about. But like the, I think the thing with microservices, right? So if you've got a massive corporation, you can't have all the things going on in one team. So you need to segment it somehow. And then you can define service boundaries and it starts to make sense. Then all the tech blogs become about microservices and how this yeah. is the way. And then learners come along and they're like, well, I've got to build my thing using microservices. It's like, no, that's, that's really yeah. not a good move. But there's where are the, the blog posts? Not for, you know, and now this, the pendulum swings back and, the, you know, there's, you, there are lots of posts now about how micro, monoliths are making return and how they're the way to go. And so hopefully the beginners come and see those posts. But when you're learning and everyone's saying, oh, you must use a microservice architecture, like, hang on. Yeah. yeah, because the people who are knowledgeable are writing about their day job. They're not writing about spinning up a Django app on a weekend, which is possible. Yeah. And you can deploy it too, which we could. <laughs> Should we get into that deployment? I do want to just point out, I think this might be the article that I read before. Like the, yeah, the, yeah you're, not, you're not Google, you're not LinkedIn, you're not Facebook, you're not Netflix. There are people who actually, that's an inaccurate statement about. There's plenty of people that work at those companies. But like you said, Carlton, the people who come along, they see these companies who they respect and say they must be doing it right. And so often with these deployment stories, with these design patterns, you know, should you have like separate caching servers that run like something like Redis? Yes, you should. No, you shouldn't. And that's the right answer at the same time, but with the the context that you need, right? Are you trying to run 10,000 servers and let 500 people work on this project? Or are you two people trying to do a startup? Like those are not the same trade-offs and balances you want to make, right? Yeah. And it depends as well on, on your model. So one one example that I really like is Stack Overflow. Now they're built entirely on the Microsoft stack. So they've got SQL Server and they're using .NET. And all, but the basic point is they've got a, a really big database, one, 
and then you know a few worker processes in front of those, and that's it. It's a classic monolith, yeah. and they're one of the biggest sites on the internet, and yet they're, and they're incredibly fast. Yeah, exactly, as fast as you could ever want. Okay, they do it in this kind of monolith, old school style, you know, hor- vertical scale, make it yeah. just bigger. Like, don't spin out parallels; just make the thing bigger. Buy a bigger <laughs> database server. So that's you're not yeah. going to be bigger than Stack Overflow, right? Right. And then another example we have. And when you the, are, um, you'll reevaluate it anyway. Whatever yeah, you do yeah, now yeah, is yeah. not going to solve that problem. Yeah. But you're not going to be bigger than Stack Overflow. And then we, we had another example, which was Doctor and Demand. They came on, Matt Lehman from those from Doctor and Demand came on Django Chat recently. They've got a more containerized approach to the to it. But the thing is, they're doing peer-to-peer communication between, you know, many simultaneous peer-to-peer video communications. Because Doctor and Demand is like a, a tele telemedicine, right? You Right, right. Like I need to book a a video appointment with my doctor. Yeah, exactly. And okay. so, but, but they've got they've got so many so many of those processes needed to be sp- spun up that they need something which scales out and then back down again very easily. So they've got a kind of more like modern, more t- a cooler technology. They're not as big as Stack Overflow probably in terms of raw traffic, but they need that flexibility of architecture. That's yeah. what we so always think, right? We say it depends. That's our tagline. Yeah, it depends. For our it depends. Yeah, uh, exactly. That's your, your subtitle. I do think the context, right? When people talk about design patterns, deployment, architecture, there's, those are always within a silent, not mentioned most of the time context in which that makes sense. And you got to decide, are you in that context? Or are you not? Yeah, no, entirely. I should say, what problems are you trying to solve? Like you can't innovate everywhere. Like there's so many pieces to a website. Do you want to innovate on deployment? Not until you're, you know, Instagram. I don't think. No, well, I think that's a great point. And it's when you're small, the most important thing is adding features and going quick, right? When you get bigger, the most important thing is to not go down, right? If random little project that is like um, an ordering service for a restaurant in Milwaukee, if it goes down for half an hour, it's not ideal, but it's not the end of the world. If Google goes down for half hour, people really notice, <laughs> you know, it's like front page news type. So it's, it's just a totally different thing. Now, before we move on to a more deployment stuff, and we're kind of in there, I do, before we get away too far, maybe we could touch real quickly on some of the new features that are coming in 3.2 and the, like the Django 3 stuff that you are, guys are excited about. Yeah, maybe. Um, Can you start with just three in general, Carlton? Because I think that makes 3.2 okay, have so, more context. Well, okay. So, but three introduced, is it, three began the process for making Django async, right? So we added, um, so historically, Python has this the WSGI, the web service gateway interface. So Django is a WSGI framework. Flask is a WSGI framework. It was this standard so that application servers could talk to protocol servers, which could talk to the internet without, you know, each framework having to have its own protocol server. So Gunicorn right. is a WSGI server and it can speak to Flask and it can speak to Django and it can speak to any other WSGI server. Right. You can use that and I can use micro WSGI and it, yeah. it, it's, we don't have to coordinate or do anything. It just happens. That's because yeah, so of the WSGI or WSGI thing, right? Yeah. So that's the standard. And so in order to make things async, there's this thing called ASCII, which is the asynchronous web gateway interface i don't know yeah i don't know i don't really yeah right. anyway it's not whiskey it's ASCII. so first of all django 3.0 brought in an ASCII handler so it wasn't async at all but you could run it under an ASCII server and then 3.1 brought in async actual async views and you can um, define an async def view and you can use i don't know httpx which is like um, an asynchronous http client with a request yeah it's like requests but async right or what's the orm story does that support async and await yet right no so that's not there yet so this is right. something that will develop over probably over the course of the four django four lifestyle so there's plans and there's thoughts and we need to get to the point where you for with the orm where you can down to your kind of filter call and so things like filter they can be totally synchronous because they don't actually make do any io they don't actually hit the database but when you then go right i've got my query set and i'm going to iterate it and i'm going to fetch the objects from the database we need that bit even if the actual connection is run in a thread or whatever we need that bit to be fully async and then django will will feel async as it is at the moment if you write an async view in django you kind of have to say well i'm not going to touch the db I'm not going to, yeah. you can wrap the ORM in a, in a sync to async wrapper, but yeah. you kind of lose the point of that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's coming, right? Yeah. That, so Andrew, yeah. So Andrew Godwin, who's driving this effort, he's, he gave a talk at uh, DjangoCon Europe about the structuring of this and what it's going to look like. And it's like, yeah, that makes sense. This is going to work. And we don't have to get, what's nice is we don't have to get 
async all the way down very to the very bottom because we can run the actual we can sort of hand off the actual database connection in a thread executor but from the outside yeah. of the orm it will look async and then you can you know you can stream out your content records of maximum throughput as you want to that kind of thing yeah well the fact that you can already do external apis and if you're going down the microservice path you can do your microservice calls with httpx and await those that's already a huge yeah, yeah, step. yeah yeah so without and this works what's amazing about the way andrew is just oh, absolute hero but he put it together in such a way that you can run this with a whiskey service so you're running django 3.1 with gunicorn like you always have yeah. And you think to yourself, I just need to make a couple of API calls, but they're quite slow and I want to make them in parallel. You can yeah. do that just by writing an async def call and then you know making the parallel calls using yeah. HTTPX, say. And it just works. And Django yeah. does all the rest for you and adapts it. And you didn't have to change your application server. You didn't have to do, you know, it's just like, yeah, right. we've got async just there. One of the challenges if you're talking to the database is you say, okay, fine, the, the bottleneck was we were waiting at the web server level at the yeah. Django level. And then we're going to push that down to the database. We're going to just make all that async. All of a sudden, all the pressure is now on the database, which can be a problem. But if you're talking external APIs, you're now pushing the pressure onto the internet, which is way scalable. Yeah, and it's it's always going to scale more than you, right? Like, you're not going to need that many client requests, probably. Yeah. Also, David Smith out there says uh, 3.2 will be a great release. You guys have done a great job getting many patches over. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, David. That's <laughs> super. We had, were working really hard. It was We had two longer lists, and we got, you know, one we had to bump for Django 4.0, but the rest we got in. So we were very Okay, good. so 3.0, async and await. This is a big deal. Yeah, and so those are the big features for 3.0. And then what's coming in 3.2 is... We've got various other bits bits and bobs. You can customize primary keys. So traditionally, they've just been auto-filled, which is in, in 32. Well, eventually, you know, if you get 22 billion of those or something, you can run out. So <laughs> you can now customize that for big in. And over the next couple of releases, you know, major releases, we will make the default big in because that's probably yeah. what it should be in 64 because then you're never going to run out of primary keys. But that's something that the big sites run into that, especially if you start creating, I don't know, events an event log yeah you know a site can generate a lot of events and they can add up quickly you, you know so anyway, yeah that's they definitely important. can functional indexes in the ape in in the orm so you can create an index on an expression like that these were greater than or that the sum of this was and and then you can query on those at full speed because they're indexed that's a really big feature oh really so you can do a query like the sum of the orders of this the customer yeah, is greater yeah, than a hundred dollars yeah. and that's a relationship yeah and then you can create an index on that value and you've been able to do that Ooh. in raw sql for you know yeah. any amount of time but that's now exposed at the orm level and that's nice that's awesome you can just kind of diff- yeah that for people who are doing reporting or yeah. or that kind of thing yeah that's massive this portion of Talk Python to Me is sponsored by Linode. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing large workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. As listeners of Talk Python to Me, you'll get a $100 free credit. You can find all the details at talkpython.fm slash Linode. Linode has data centers around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing regardless of location. Just choose the data center that's nearest to your users. You'll also receive 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes clusters, and more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit talkpython.fm slash Linode or click the link in your show notes, then click that create free account button to get started. And then we've got, I don't know, a new memcache backend for the cache. We've got, you know, updating the the API for using the admin for nice decorator API for creating various admin customizations. We've got themes in the admin. We're going to ship a dark thing. That's a big one for people will see right away anyways. Because yeah, the Django admin could use a refresh and there's been all sorts of third-party ways to customize yeah. it but now be built in a bit so more there's all sorts in the in the blog post for the alpha release, i described it as a mess of new features and that's exactly what it is it, but what what's nice is it's not there aren't apart from async which is coming there aren't any new major features in django right it's 15 years old it's rich and mature and fe- largely feature complete but each major release each eight months it's a, it always amazes me when we're drawing to get up the final release notes 
how much depth and extra like substance there is in the features that yeah. we've managed to add and that have been contributed over that eight month period. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I feel like you're capturing much of the modern Python awesomeness. One other area that's I think interesting, I have no idea what your plans are around it, but maybe you could just give us your thoughts is type hints, type annotations. Yep. Uh, that's difficult for us. Carl about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that, that's difficult for us because Django, I mean, if you take the OR, it's super dynamic mm. and there's an amazing project, Django Stubs, where they've got stub files and they've got, you know, nice. they've done a super job and it really w- does work well. So if you load up VS Code or PyCharm these days, you get very good autocomplete around things like Django model field definitions. Yeah. And that's all powered by Django Stubs. Oh, yeah. Which probably is powered by type hints underneath, right? Yeah, yeah, it totally is. Yeah. A year or so ago, there was some discussion about whether we would make those inline hints in Django itself. And the technical board at the time said, no, we need the typing technology to evolve a little bit further in in Python itself before Django can jump on a jump on and say, look, we endorse this particular technology. There is, yeah. There's various ways of doing it and various type hinting type checkers and various... And so say so we, we favored MyPy, which is obviously the, the endorsed one. Well, what about the others? We can't support them all and they might change. And PyWrite and all the different various initiatives, yeah. We can't take it out once it's in. The thing with yeah. the, the reason why people love Django is because it's super stable. You know, you, right. you write a site five years later, you don't really have to do very much to keep it going. And so the technical board at the time said, no, we're not going to bring those type hints into Django, but that will be reviewed. You know, we'll look at it again in a little while's time. One thing I will say about typing, in all the PEPs, it says type hints remain optional. They're not meant to be compulsory, even by convention. Do you feel maintaining Django, a certain pressure to have them? I do worry that that optionality of type hints is perhaps undermined a little bit in the day-to-day development. I'm not sure. I also code in Swift, right? Which is a fully statically typed. Swift is pretty strong in its syntax. Like you can't even null out. Yeah. Even if they could be, right? If they're not allowed to be optional explicit. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the Swift type. Yeah. I mean, Swift is a a fantastic language, but there's no option. It's type hints or it's type annotations all the way. And then when I come back to Python after a few hours of that, I'm like, oh, this is so I know. worth the fresh air. You know, the thing that I really, the comparison that I make a lot is between TypeScript, which is type annotations for JavaScript and Python type hints. And I always walk away from TypeScript feeling like, ah, this, that was way harder than it should have been. Why was it so frustrating and fighting me? Whereas in Python, you might get some squigglies because you didn't quite define something just right or it wasn't defined at all, but then it just, it carries on, right? Whereas things that are completely it must work within this context, they can become challenging, especially the reason I bring up TypeScript is the stuff that it brings in is not necessarily typed, just like Python, whereas Swift is end-to-end, it's all from scratch under that same system, so it's coherent. But you know, bringing in, say, jQuery into TypeScript, like there's no TypeScript jQuery. I know there's like stubs you can put on and whatnot, but like that kind of stuff is more Python-like. And so I think it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and Django's in that very much in that boat where it was never written with type hints in mind. Yeah, of so, course, they didn't exist. You know, and if you look at Django Stubs, it's awesome. But a lot of the things are like string or any. And it's like, but that's <laughs> yeah. horrible, right? You don't yeah. want to write that every yeah. single time. That's an issue. And, and then another thing I see, which I'm not sure about, is sometimes they, they make a type like a model, um, the Django model admin. They make it a generic that takes, takes the model type which tells you what it's the admin of. And I remember, and I look at that and I wince a little bit. You're like back to C++ templates or something, right? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And I, I see where they're going with that. It's amazing what they've been able to do there. But I remember coding Objective-C um, UI table views, say. And what you would always do is you get um, object, your row class in from the UI table view delegate where you're getting a list of cells, right? So like a list of email messages. And you'd immediately cast it to the type you wanted so that you knew what you were dealing with. Yeah. In a way, when I get something back from a model admin, I'm quite happy to write colon model name yeah. to tell the, the editor what it's meant to be, to tell yeah. the type checker what it's meant to be. And then for the rest of the method, I get the autocomplete, I get the type checking. And you probably don't put any more type hints because it, it just now flows. And it's, yeah, I yeah. agree, it's so good at generate like allowing you to generate code incredibly fast if the tool supports it one quick comment or, or thought that uh before we move on this having typed around the orm is really interesting because all the big orms seem to do the, the same basic flow you know i'm thinking you know django orm sql alchemy the even no sql ones like mongo engine which i use they all have a class which has the columns mm-hmm. defined as descriptors so at 
definition time, they create the tables or the collections. And then at runtime, they become the scalar versions of the thing they say they are, right? A integer column is now actually an integer. So what I've, I've done when I define the model class is say like name colon stir equals string column. And so the Python thinks it's all the types are actually what I said, the primary types like in the model. And then the underlying ORM can do what it needs to do. But, you know, the rest of my code is like, oh, that's a float column right there, or float field. That's been really helpful. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't run into any problems doing that, but uh, it's, it's been pretty helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the thing that, that brings to mind, to, it, well, there's data classes, right, which they yeah. brought in in 3.7 or 3.8. Yeah. And then Pydantic is an exciting thing, which is- Pydantic's fantastic, yeah. You define a model, call it a model, with exactly this. It's like field name type with an annotation string or int or whatever. And that works really well. And I could imagine us generating Django ORM models from that kind of thing. But then you end up needing options. Like, is it nullable or is it, yeah. you know, is yeah. it required? Is it, what validators does this field have? And then it starts, when you yeah. start to add validators, it starts to look almost like what we've got now. I mean, Pydantic's got one good advantage in, in raw serialization speed. It's very fast. So that's something we can learn. But the short answer is, yeah. I don't know, but it's exciting times, isn't it? It's very exciting times. All right. Let's talk really quickly about maintaining your, your content or things that you generate. Like you guys all write <laughs> articles, books, do online stuff, even podcasts. So 3.2 is out. What broke? Like real quickly, well, maybe you want to just talk about what you've been doing to, you know. Yeah, there's a reason a why there's up-to-date Django books because the release cycle of every nine months doesn't overlap with the traditional publisher cycle. So for me, I mean, I'm on version, I think five for most of the books. So yeah. I was on one ten or one eleven. So I've it's sort of like writing the book again every time. I basically go through from scratch and because all the code is linked to the text. Because I'm self-published, I can do all that. I have my flow down. So really it's I have a kind of a list of new features I know that are in there. So I'll play around with them to make sure that things don't break. And then I'm constantly emailing with readers. So I have feedback on kind of what works and what doesn't. So half the new features are fixing things so it's smooth and then half just making the text. So at this point, I feel pretty good about the flow of, of all three. And people will say, what about this? And maybe I can explain it a little bit better. I added, I mean, so for three, one added in the beginner's book, I really wanted to have proper deployments, but not go as deep as I do in the professional book. So I, I did introduce environment variables and showed I think a pretty elegant way to get environment variables and to have some lockdown for deployed site. Whereas before in beginners, it was just sort of like the local version, which is pretty open, was what you deployed because it was more about getting something up. But I was able right. to introduce environment variables. We could talk about that more. There's a third party package that's great. So so that's always the tension for me is showing and telling, right? Like I want I want to explain everything, but I don't want to overwhelm people. And so that's part yeah. of the the thing I have to think about for 3.1. And I think also for Django being so stable, at least you can say all the stuff is still the same. There's just new features we haven't mentioned or a new way maybe is better, but as opposed to this does not work anymore. Well, it's the difference between what trips a professional programmer and someone who's new. So for example, in 3.1, the pathlib was added when you create a new Django project, um, the settings.py file, which is the default settings. The way the routes are done is a little bit different. Like a two-minute Stack Overflow thing for someone who's used to using Django or the breaking stuff, but that can completely derail a beginner. There's usually a couple things like that, you know. So in that case, like I have a dedicated blog post because I knew that was coming, and just to this morning I got more questions around it. So it's that's sort of the the thing that fun me is figuring out how do I you know be compassionate to the true beginners, but how to are more <laughs> further along. It's a lot of work to do. I don't know how you could do it. I don't either. I was just dealing with some GitHub issues on some folks who are having trouble because a mismatch of pip upgrades and other packages. And it's just like, it's just how it goes. Real quick, John from the live streams, really excited about the admin themes. So that's really cool that, that it's going to come along. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, they add up to greatness. I think that's, I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, great say. All right. We talked a lot about deployment already which is why I've been dancing around a bit. But let's go ahead and talk about deployment. So when I create a web application with Django or really honestly with Flask or anything, I've got a cool app, but it's, you know, web apps are not generally meant for the individual. They are meant to go on the internet and be amazing and connect things and allow other people to do stuff. And that's a huge gap, right? So maybe I've just learned how to do Django. You just talked about your beginner's book, Will. And I've, all right, I've 
finally got that one page that wouldn't show and the database stopped, you know, crashing when I did that one query because I checked for none now and it's all good. Wait, I have to learn Linux and I have to become <laughs> an admin? And like, <laughs> yeah. what the heck just happened, right? So how do you guys approach that? Like, What do you tell that person? Yeah, first of all, I hand on shoulder, I feel you, right? <laughs> because yeah. it's just, there, there's this massive deployment gap. Like we've got the, the Django tutorial, we've got the Django girls tutorial, we've got the, the Django REST framework tutorial. People have done those, they've got their app together, they've come up with some ideas, they've learned a teeny bit of JavaScript to make it that bit better. And now put it online. And exactly this, I've got to learn Linux. Oh my word. Yeah, among other things. I mean, yeah. it's two things though, right? I think I think yeah, like when yeah. I think about this, well, there's, there's two ways to think about it. One is making it friendly which we can talk about and then there's the specifics of do i you know do i do it on a vps do i do it on a, a pass so those are two separate things the first one i think we can generalize and django has some good notes on that um the second one is sort of a deep end of opinion i guess i'm in favor of like i use i'm a big fan of platforms if somebody had something so, that like hosted aws for Django, I would use that. I mean, so, and I'm, I'm just going to throw it in here now. I'm working on an app for this ex exact problem. It's called Button. It's btn.dev. And it's, the idea is to be able to spin up a small environment for this exact, I just want to get my app online use case without, you know, you having to become a sysadmin expert. Yeah. So the spectrum looks like to me, pass, right? Platform as a service, which you said you like Her Heroku and there's other options as well. Yeah. Heroku, DigitalOcean. Then I, I think maybe Button is even before that. I'm not entirely sure, like in terms of complexity. Let me jump in. You've got the, the yeah, platform yeah. on the server. You've got Heroku, which is there at one end. And that's kind of like, they'll run your app, but they don't, yeah. that's it, right? Or, you, you know, you can run another worker instance, but then you say to yourself, oh, I want to, I, I just want to put a file online. It's like, well, how on earth do I do that? I can't. Or I want to put up a static mm. website. So I've got to bring in, I don't know, Netlify because another service. And I, yeah, Netlify is really nice for just pure static sites, actually. Yeah, it is. It's awesome. But then all of a sudden you're running two services and then you want to, yes. you know, do some log analysis. <laughs> yes. So you've got to bring in, and it's like, oh, hang on, I've got three services now running and it's, it gets a bit out of hand. So then on the other hand, you've got AWS and you go to AWS and it's like, Oh my word. You know, it's the paradox of choice. It's just like that and Azure. I mean, they're both incredibly powerful, but it's yeah. just like, oh my goodness, look at this admin dashboard. Like I, there's huge thing with 50 choices. I go into one and it expands into 20 and then I need to figure out the right one of those 20. It's just, it's mind boggling. Yeah, exactly. And so but where button fits in that is it's on AWS but it provides a very simplified environment. This is because it's part tool. It's tool to do it, but also a guide that says, "Look, this is how yeah. you should deploy." So the app puts together the environment for how you should deploy your Django app. Or you know, I you, see. you can you do any app, but you know, I begin with Django because that's where obviously what I know. And then the difference between well, why wouldn't I? Why would I use that instead of a platform as a service like Heroku? Well, because if you grow out of it. It's just AWS, and so you can go on yeah. and move on to other things, and you can export to... When you do go closer to, now you are kind of Google, yeah. or whatever. You've got a growth path. Obviously, not not far down that road, but a little ways, you can go, oh, we actually need to do this other thing. Yeah, and so that's what I'm aiming for, and that that's launching very soon. It'll be early access by the middle of February, you know, beta by end of the quarter, and then what, what I call version, what ends the beta, I don't know, end of the year, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. That sounds really cool. We'll definitely link to it in the show notes. When I was pausing there, I said, okay, well, on one end, we have pass like Heroku and other platform as a service options. What is the other end? Is the other end Linux virtual machines or is the other end Kubernetes clusters? It's Kubernetes cluster. It's well beyond <laughs> virtual machines, right? So <laughs> like to spin up a, a virtual machine is not a problem. The problem is that you get a bare OS and then you've got to do all the app to get installed yeah. to turn it into yeah, yeah. To something you can deploy on, right? And then you do that once. And then the second problem is that six months later, you need to upgrade it and you've got to replace that VM. So that's very difficult. And I think that's what leads people into this kind of world of containers. And then into containers, it's like, oh, well, I've got, I need an orchestration platform to, to ah, and that's, there are, people who make a career doing that yeah you can't expect to do that sensibly i agree with carlton it depends slightly in that like so in my professionals book we i show how to use docker and docker is for a smaller site i think actually that you can put your containers online so you can yeah. in a lot of different I think flow is actually quite nice but i agree with carlton's broader point about you know natties and all the rest it's i feel like 
is the goal. I'm setting up a Kubernetes cluster and I'm running the data layer and I'm running the caching layer. And I'm if you're managing that whole thing in a cluster, you're at the far right end of the most yes. complicated. But if I'm going to deploy to a hosted Kubernetes container and consume a database as a service and a caching tier as a service, then it starts to fall back to, well, I just get my container to run and plug in these connection strings and we're good to go. I think there's, it can kind of live on both sides, honestly. There's different approaches and different sweet spots for each individual. The difference for me is you can containerize your application and run it up, but where do you container that to? Where do you run that container? Is that on a set of VMs, which you provisioned yourself and put a container management system on like Kubernetes, or is that on somebody else? Like, is it basically service, like Cloud Run? Cloud Run takes your container and runs it, and you don't know anything about where it's running. So that's more like a platform as a service again. Yeah, it is. It it falls back in that. So uh, Will said he's a fan of Heroku. Carlton, let me ask you this question. If you Mm -hmm. were writing an application in Django that was expected to get 5 million data-driven, like proper requests, not for CSS and whatnot, but proper requests a month, how would you deploy it right now? I would deploy it on a pretty big um, VM with as many process workers as I need. So I'd put stick Nginx as my front front end, perhaps in I'd probably use something like application load balancer in front of it, one of these things that AWS will provide or Azure have got their, their equivalent load balancer. Then I'd have my Nginx, which is serving my static files. Behind that, I'd probably have two, three. It's also doing SSL, for example, right? Your, your Let's Encrypt bits, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they're handing all the certificate renewals and all of that kind of things, which is probably worth the money because it only takes you a few minutes, but you mm. forget and then your site goes down. And it, no, just <laughs> hand all that stuff off. So I'd put that on an, a nice size VM. I'd have you know three, four, five Gunnicorn workers serving the application instances, mm-hmm. load balanced um, behind Nginx. And then I'd have Postgres on a decent size RDS, which is a managed database service behind it. As a first preference, I would scale up the VM and I would scale up the RDS rather than- Way before you something. scale out. Yeah, way before I scale out. Yeah, I agree. Um, like if you can- as soon as you have them scaled out, it gets tricky, right? You become yeah. you. It takes you up a notch in that DevOps story. At that point, you you're hiring you know an extra hand just to manage the ops, an extra hand to manage the ops. Yeah. And it's like, well, what was the revenue of the application that justified that the salary and the social security of that extra hand? Yeah, I mean, maybe you're like, well, I don't really want to pay for that larger VM that's eighty dollars a month instead of ten dollars a month. But if the alternative is now we spend human hours on making you know three ten dollar VMs run. You know, it's so easy for businesses to become penny wise, pound foolish around these kinds of things, right? It's it's just like, well, we can't get you a new monitor, a new keyboard. Like, really? You pay me yeah, like $80,000 a year and you won't give me a new keyboard to be more productive? Or I feel like that's the deployment equivalent of that. Yeah, no, it's it's penny pinching for no reason. I mean, the other great example is Sentry, right? So Sentry is your kind of, um, lo- you log all your errors to it, send yeah. your exceptions to it, and it gives you great stack traces yeah. and it links it back to GitHub. It's awesome. Why would you not have this? And then you're, you're on the free account, you know, it gives you 5,000 events a month or something. And it's like, oh, we need 30 bucks to get onto the, like, the million events a month. The manager's like, no, you can't have paid Sentry. You're like, what? What are you yes. talking about? Uh, so then exactly. you stop logging. You're like, well, we can't log that event because of Sentry. And then you, you're blind. And then your app goes down and you spend four hours trying to work yeah. out what it is while you're losing business. Like that was 30 bucks a month for Sentry. Just pay it. But yeah. I think it depends if your manager has felt that pain as an individual contributor themselves, right? Yeah, because if, yeah. they, if they haven't, then yeah, stop complaining, developer, you know? But yeah, you should, I always thought, I mean, and at Quizlet, which is now, like half of all high school students, we had uh, Joyant, which are they still around? They're a hosting company, but we were having scaling yeah, issues. They came in and we had the whole team, CTO, which was great. And you know, at the end of the day, they were just like, you need bigger hardware, yeah. <laughs> you know? Get more hardware, so get more like, hardware. If you can get more, you know, and as a business person, if you can throw money at a scaling problem, like, yeah, that's the easiest money you've spent. Yeah, you know, so what I'm doing right now, Carlton, is I'm running Nginx on Ubuntu, but I'm using yeah. MicroWSGI. Yeah, okay, and I came fine, across yeah. this, although as I'm starting to think about the ASGI stuff, Unicorn, Unicorn, and like UVicorn worker processes is yes. starting to look like a really awesome thing. But what I wanted to point out is there's this great article by the Bloomberg tech folks talking about re- configuring MicroWSGI for production. And man, do they have a bunch of good little tips of like, well, here's all these things, but oh, did you know if you turn on like enable threads versus not, or if you set single interpreter mode to true, you automatically get better performance because 
it was configured to potentially run like Python 3.7 and 3.8 at the same time. And you're never going to yeah. do that in one process, most likely. And there's just all these really fantastic settings and uh, like vacuum and whatnot to clean up uh, sockets and whatnot. So people, if they're running MicroWSD in production, they should absolutely check that out. That's a really... I redid a bunch of the way I was doing things after reading that one. Just scroll to the image at the top, if you would, please, Michael. The little sure. diagram that they had. Yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, so that looks almost exactly how I deploy. Like NGINX yeah. in front of a worker process, you know, that's running your Python applications and, you know, talking to your database. Yeah, exactly. It's it's pretty standard. Yeah, they got um, memcached in there. So I'd, I'd have Redis instead of memcached, but same deal. Yeah. There's a comment about, does EC2 sit between a, a VPS and Kubernetes? Yeah, Kubernetes. Since well, you're AWS... Uh, Expert. Okay. Well, I don't know about expert, but so, but on AWS, like you, this is what I haven't found in AWS. Like I would love to love their light sale product, but it just seems totally uncared where they, they kind of manage the cluster all for you. But on the, the, I can't even remember what the cluster service is called, but the, you have to provision the EC2 instances and you can do it quite easily. It's not hard to do, but you have to spin those up and they're kind of your responsibility. And then it will run the cluster service on top of it, the Kubernetes on top of it, and then you deploy your containers in there. This is where something like Cloud Run is a bit easier because you don't have that layer of I'm provisioning the, the underlying instances myself. And you have to choose the size of them and you can scale them up easily enough. But, you know, it's yeah. it's. It's non-trivial to set up a cluster on um, AWS. That's always been my feeling as well. I also feel like you're sort of committed to their hosted services. And if for some reason you don't want to use them, the step is not a tiny bit more. It's a bigger, a much bigger step to like try to rework that. Yeah. The example is run, you can run your own Postgres on EC2 instances. I mean, you know, you can provision the disks and you can yeah. do all that rather than RDS. And for me, I'm like, okay, if you've got a very specialist use case, then yeah, do that. But RDS is great. Just use RDS. Just use the hosted service because, again, you're saving money. And yeah, it's a bit more expensive hour, but not as expensive as you, your time, your life force. Yeah. Well, I think also it depends, right? Are you one single person who is building up an idea and you have zero revenue and you're just trying to do this for two hours a week to see if you can get a little tiny bit of traction? Maybe you're, it is worth an extra five hours, right? Versus I have actual money coming in the door yeah, and yeah, I'm trading yeah. off building this feature or that feature. Like those are really very different contexts. Also though, you get yourself a Raspberry Pi and you can install Nginx on it and Postgres <laughs> on it. And no, but you can run yeah. all those, yeah, right? And you can, can do it yeah. locally and you can bet you can run a Apache bench again against it and you it will serve plenty. So you can yeah. get not the, the nano one. Yeah, sure. But you can get you can run Postgres is my point. You don't need yeah. RDS to run a small Postgres. But yeah. if you're running a yeah. slightly bigger one, then yeah, use RDS. And then if you're a specialist and you really need to customize your Postgres somehow, then okay. Yeah. You know, spin up the EC2, install Postgres on it and customize it to your heart's content. But that's well beyond my skill level. And yeah. But this is why they have hundreds or thousands of employees, right? Like when people say, Why do the big companies do that? It's like, well, why does Instagram have a thousand, whatever, thousand engineers when Carlton, you and I could spin up a, you know, a prototype <laughs> relatively yeah. quickly. It's like, because we're not dealing with the traffic they are. And so it just gets exponentially harder, which is why you need yeah. a lot of people for yeah. all these issues. Absolutely. Will, you mentioned something really interesting there that I would like to just touch on for a moment. Then we're getting short on time. You said you could run SQLite. Oh, well, so that Carlton has a good story about SQLite. I mean, about how it's... So generally, people say, well, you can't use it. You shouldn't use it at all. But there are some cases where that's not the case. I mean, if it's a read-heavy application, you can probably get away with it. Simon yeah. Wilson's doing a lot with Dataset. Yeah. I just had him on the show. Uh, his episode just came out this week, actually. Yeah. He's great. And that is such a cool project. I feel like that is actually an undersold story for the beginners, right? Because deployment of web application often means deployment of web application plus database server plus yeah, yeah. backups of database server plus like all the like all of a sudden it goes from you know 20% to 90% hard or whatever right or you go to hosted and you're like okay well I still got to back up that thing potentially and you know there's just you've you've got potential migrations i don't know there's a lot of stuff going on and if you can say well until you actually get much traffic you can just say here's the db file and the sqlite connection on the one machine that I have and you back up that file every now and then, that might be a good story if 
the alternative is it's too much for me to get my app out. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Especially if it's a blog or a content site, like a, a shop yeah. catalog where it's all read only. And, you know, maybe you're using the admin to manage the, the content on it. If it's only one person using the admin, you're not going to have concurrent rights, which is the thing about SQLite. And so it's never going to be an issue. And it, it is fast. It's far, at read at read only workloads. It's fast. It's fast enough. It's Yeah, it's very fast. Yeah. You can use and it. And there's no server for people who don't understand are not totally aware. Like it comes with Python and it runs in process. There's no other server to set up and connect to. Yeah. So Carl did correct me on that at one point because I was saying, oh yeah, no SQLite. And he was, so I have to give credit to Carlton for there are some instances. Here's the secret about SQLite. It's got a writer headlock, a WAL mode, which means that actually you've got a good chance of being able to do kind of concurrent writes too. Django's ORM has got a retry value, which if you set that, you know, you know, a little bit higher, if it gets database locked, it will try again in a second. And then you know, you can go quite a long way enabling these things. Mm. And then when yeah. you finally in production actually get a database was locked error, then you could think, you know what? I think it's time we move to post. Yeah. In my world, I'm running MongoDB as the database and it, it doesn't make sense to consider running that on SQLite. But I can remember back when I first started deployment, like, okay, well, I got to learn Linux. I got to learn Nginx. I got to learn MicroWSGI. Like, okay, what other deployment, like, how do I have to learn running my database on these things? There's just, there was a lot. And I can definitely see if you could say, well, here's an intermediate step to get it out and get it going. And then you just change the connection string at some point over to a big separate server. I think that's a really good path. It's a little bit like, you know, raw SQL versus Django models. This is timely because I've had a thread emailing with a reader who, who doesn't quite, was has something in mind. And he's like, I modeled it all out, I, the scheme all out in SQL. And SQL is easy to learn the basics and really hard to scale. And while Jane lets you write SQL, you really, really, really should resist doing that unless you're a way better programmer than I am. Yeah. So, so whereas before you would have to learn tons of stuff, so the same thing with deployment, you can get a lot of the way there by trusting someone who says, until you need it, don't bother. The same thing with database stuff. Like, okay, you know, do some basic SQL, understand a little bit of the relations, but that's the power of the Django ORM is that it will handle so much of this for you. And if you right. think you need to go custom, unless, you know, if you have any doubts, you shouldn't do it. Yeah. And the migration side, that's a huge part of a challenge if you were maintaining it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, Andrew, Andrew was responsible for the work doing most of the, a lot of the async stuff now. Nice. All right, guys, we're getting short on time, but I do want to just really quickly cover one more thing. Servers up and running. Feels like it works. I watched it all day. It was fine. I want to walk away from my desk. I want to know that <laughs> it's probably still fine. And to me, like Carlton, you already talked about one thing. There's some really great monitoring services that you integrate at the API level. Like you plug in as a library to your code. Sentry being one of them. They're really great. They sponsored the show for a while. So thanks for that as well. But I, I use Sentry on, yeah, they're great. And I, I've got Sentry running on my apps. And every now and then I'll get an email. And a lot of, at this point, when I first integrated that type of service, I got a lot of, oh, I didn't know that was happening. Oh, crap. I'm going to have to fix that. Well, that's why there's levels of logging and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, once I kind of dialed in, now it's more like, well, somebody tried to send like some binary hacky thing that broke the URL parsing, but it's not really a problem. It's just, right. But having that thing there is is really important, I think. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Sentry, I I just can't see a reason not to use it. Even if they've got the free plan, why wouldn't yeah. you have that? Yeah, the free tier, like once you run out, you can decide whether or not you want to pay for it. But, you know, yeah. at least get um, get a, a, some kind of insight into the errors that are happening. Yeah. The other thing that I'm a fan of is Prometheus. It takes a teeny bit of setting up, but again, you can get yourself a, a Raspberry Pi and you can play with that locally. And it's not that hard. You could put it on your Mac or you put it on your Windows machine, it will run. But get a Raspberry Pi, set it up, monitor the, the device. Prometheus is good fun. There's a dashboard that goes with it called Grafana. And then they do a log thing called Locky, which, you know, you have to configure it yourself, but it teaches you about your application. You have to say, okay, I want to monitor this. And then you can yeah. put a little couple of tags in and then, okay, you get metrics yeah. then for that bit. So, you know, perhaps you've got a, a slow view. So one thing you can do is you, you can put on your Nginx logs, you can log the upstream re response time. So you've handed off to Garnacorn or to MicroWhiskey. And Nginx will then log how long those responses took. And then you can say, well, actually, that, those responses to that particular request is taking a long time. And then on that request, you can go into that view and you can add a little, you know, a little bit of instrumentation. And then you can start getting metrics for what that view is doing. And yeah. 
Yeah, you know that's the, really good. That, <laughs> he does it for all of you guys. Yeah, I'm also a fan of Datadog. I think those sound pretty similar. Okay, I think they're Boston based actually, but yeah, they do. A good yeah, job. I think they they call it APM application process yeah, monitoring. Exactly. Right? And so there's, there's quite a lot of commercial solutions, and then Prometheus is the sort of DIY nice equivalent. Nice. Okay, cool. So that's the errors and performance. And the other side is just the website is down, right? So maybe there's so many different layers and moving parts. For example, like we have very little downtime with our train courses and stuff. But one thing that did happen is we have this thing that will take the main IP address and switch it to a failover server so we can do reboots and patches and then it'll switch it back. And that's all done through an API, through like a Git push, and then it all just sort of goes down the chain. Well, at one point there was a bug where that switch of the IP like disassociated it with either server. So the server thought it was fine. It's like, whoa, things are chill, right? Right, so you log in and it's like, yeah, no problem. It's but fine. the site was just timing out or so. I don't remember what happened, but it wasn't good. <laughs> so I think there's some really nice uptime monitoring things that, that are free that people should just plug in to go hit these three pages just to see. I can talk to the site, it talks to the database and answer comes back. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've got those configured. I was, I know we're almost out of time. I did want to mention on deployment. I think one thing that trips people up, especially around Django is static files, which is something yeah. if you're doing it, you know, VPS, you have, you know, and I think the key thing is that your server doesn't want to run your static files. Like it can, yeah. there's ways to do it, but you know, so both within Django, Django out of the box defaults to local settings and it'll, the Django has a local server that'll just run your static files. To put that in, deploy, in deployment, you would run collect static, which is a command that makes a single static file. And you probably want to use something like white noise, but there's a couple steps there, but something that really sort of intermediate level Django people, it really trips them up. I have, I have a blog post on that because I forget the commands. There's like four things to tweak that you just have to do every time. But yeah. it's, it worked locally. Why doesn't it work live? And it's like partly because people don't understand, you know, how their server is working because they don't have to. But, you know, that's that's I just want to. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Yeah. One of the big four, right? So get your code in place, however you do that, tarball, git pull, you know, whatever, however you get it there. Configure your virtual environment, you know, so in pip install all your requirements. Configure your database and make sure you connect to that and get your static files in place. Database is the other one that, be, you know, well, you know this, Michael, like beginners, they're like, well, I updated it locally and I, I pushed my code. Why isn't my production database different? Right. And it's, yeah. it is yeah. confusing. Like I still occasionally make that mistake, you know, just, but you know, your code is not your two separate databases. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you want as well. You want to be able to write your blog post in locally and then it appear on your server. You don't want to have to go, oh no, now I have to paste it into the admin on my remote. Yeah, it depends how automated you want to go. I mean, for for a simple, like, so my Learn Django site, which is basically one admin, largely a content site. I mean, in terms of easy peasy, it's just Django and then I've got Cloudflare uh, uh, in front for, and it's done. It's super fast. I get, you know, decent amount of traffic. I don't have to think about it. I've got, I think I've got PagerDuty, one of those, you know. Mm -hmm. and yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the one that tells you if it's, it's completely unreachable, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's an external one that, you know, yes, exactly. to your point, because you can't always trust yourself. Yeah. Yeah. There's some interesting ones. I use Status Cake and it's neat, but there's some one that I heard the Dan Bader was telling me about that would sound a lot nicer, but I'm like, but this one's already set up. You know, it's it's not that important. I get I get notifications if it goes down. I'm all good. It's plumbing, right? Like I'm happy to yeah. let. <laughs> we have the new silver pipes. Like ah, my bronze pipes fine. I'm just gonna leave it. Well, that's Docker <laughs> for Carlton's. You know, so I use yeah. Docker loads. <laughs> all right, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, all the time, all the time. Let's just wrap it up really quick. There's a Django newsletter. I learned about that. That's interesting. You guys want to just mention that that exists? Yeah, yeah. So I, that's something I run with Jeff Triplett, who's um partner at RevSys. He's a Python board member, very involved with Django. So Django-news.com. There wasn't a uh, regular Django newsletter, just there wasn't a podcast. So he and I have been doing that for a little over a year and has nice. projects, articles. I sort of wish someone else did it so I didn't have to do it, but yeah. we got <laughs> a lot of people listening using it. So that's a good resource for the community. Yeah, fantastic. All right. So before I let you two out of here, final two questions really quick. Will, I'll go with you first. Notable PyPI package out there that you were like, oh my gosh, I ran across this the other day. I can't believe it. Uh, that's a good question. I'll go back to an, an old school one, which I think is Bleach, because I've been thinking about a course on forms and Bleach is is a you know, Python one, not Django specific, but you pretty much always want to have that added. So this validates like user input to make sure there's no like cross-site scripting type stuff? Yeah, so that's okay. top of mind. Not a new one, but I think it, you know, along with white noise, you just got to use it. Yeah, awesome. Carlton? Yeah, no, well, the one that's just really captured my imagination recently is Rich, which is the- Yeah, um, Rich is cool. The library for creating 
basically nice terminal output, nice yeah. console output, but it does everything. It even has like tables and all sorts yeah. of stuff. Yeah, it's really neat. But like, it's got this inspect functionality where you can get an and you're, you're sitting there and you're in the shell and you're like I want to see it and you print it and you, you dear it and you you look at the dict and it's all it's not and then you go inspect and Rich formats this thing mm. where it's like oh yeah I can look here and I can see exactly what's going on and it's just amazing yeah. Rich is brilliant 20,000 that's what I love about coding right I, I'd, I'd never heard of this before and it's clearly a very established thing <laughs> well I think it's last year it's taken off quite yeah it's about a year old it's taken off quite steeply in its uh, adoption. Uh, one that I ran across really recently, just throw it out there because it's a Django semi-related one, is Disk Cache. Have you guys heard of that? No. So it's a really interesting uh, caching plugin that will, instead of using memory for caching, it will store it onto local disk because you usually have way more hard drive space than you have memory in the cloud. And it plugs into Django to like a stand-in for the cache there. Okay, fine. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of file cache. Yeah. in general because like memory is expensive right so memory cache is is the best way and redis and memcache are, are good ways of doing that all in memory but then you think i just want to generate some html yeah. once and then just pipe it off the hard disk exactly to me this is a kind of the equivalent of sqlite versus a real database it's like you don't need redis or memcache or something like completely set up just like until it gets beyond whatever it looks pretty interesting these packages things by the way like we include packages every week in django news and there's also like an awesome django repo that jeff and yeah. i do you know because the problem is you want some degree of curation right like something new that's but like right one that's like legit enough to be worth looking at yeah absolutely thanks yeah that's very cool all right and then final question uh if you're gonna write some python code what editor do you use vs code same for both of us yeah right carl well, you're still VS code? I, well i have to yes VS Code, very nice. Use it a lot. Also, though, I still like BB Edit. Yeah, right on. All right. Keeping it old school every now and then just for a little nostalgia. I'll tell you what, right? So I'm using VS Code and I'm like, but I need to do some transformations or I need to, yeah. you know, yeah. do a multi-file search with a diff here. And VS Code's got all that stuff, but it's a bit, you know, this is built in JavaScript, whereas BB Edit's a native Mac app and it's got a lot going for it. Yeah, absolutely. I use PyCharm. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Um Local company here in Portland, Panic, came out with, is it called Nova? I think it's Nova. They just yeah, came out with a brand yeah, new yeah. editor, I which give looks, looks pretty interesting as well, yeah. It, it looks just beautiful. Transmit. I love Transmit. Yeah, I use it all the time, all the time for S3 stuff. We were talking about yeah, Nova, great. yeah. Fantastic. Cool. But but I think, all right, gentlemen, well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's, it's been great. And thanks for all the work on Django, and I'll catch up with you all soon. All right. Thanks for having us. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Our guests on this episode were Will Vincent and Carlton Gibson, and it's been brought to you by Square and Linode. With Square, your web app can easily take payments, seamlessly accept debit and credit cards, as well as digital wallet payments. Get started building your own online payment form in three steps with Square's Python SDK at talkpython.fm square. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux Virtual Machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Visit talkpython.fm slash Linode and click the Create Free Account button to get started. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code. Mm-hmm.